0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed.
1: I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, the accursed, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you, good morning, and welcome to the breakfast of the voice of Islam. With me, Waleed Ahmed, and accompanied by a new recruit uh, this time, we're uh, inducting into the world of radio broadcasting, Imam uh, Jaliz Khan. As-salamu uh, uh, Jaliz
0: Wa alaikum salam. peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Uh, the time is uh, approaching four minutes past seven. It's Friday the 20th of October 2023. Um, this is uh, uh, an interactive broadcast. It means that our listeners have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions that uh, may be taking place. All you need to do is uh, pick up the phone, uh, dial zero two zero. Eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and you'll be put through to share your thoughts and views on uh, whatever is uh, being discussed. So, uh, if you are interested, then do please uh, join in your, in our discussions. Alternatively, you can post on X uh, um, and uh, share your thoughts that way. Uh, Voice of Islam UK is the Twitter handle. Um, now, there's going to be a variety of different subjects that we're going to be exploring this morning. Uh, So do take a plunge and make contact with us on anything that uh, may have stimulated your interest. Um, In a few minutes' time, we'll uh, begin with the rundown of the weather, but then we'll go on to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. Won't be spending too much time on each, uh, but try and uh, rattle through as many of them in the first half hour as possible. Um, Now, those familiar with the show will know that um, we tend to hone in on two particular topics uh, that we uh, delve in, in some depth. Uh, So today, the first topic um, may be a bit involved uh, for this time in the morning, but I suppose to do with philosophy and psychology, but it's nevertheless an important one. It's about consciousness. So uh, our first topic is entitled, What is Consciousness? Theories of consciousness are also going to be explored explored in this topic. Um, And we'll be trying um, to understand this with the help of uh, Professor Neil Seth. Uh, And uh, Professor Seth is uh, is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience and the director of the Sussex Centre of Consciousness Science. Uh, We also spoke to Professor uh, Frank uh, Sengbil, uh, he's a professor of neuroscience, and he's head of the Neuroscience Division in the School of Biosciences and the Cardiac University. So we'll be sharing the recording of that conversation, which uh, Imam Jaliz had with him. Uh, uh, and we'll be sharing that with our listeners during the, the slot after 7.30 a.m. So if you're interested in this particular topic, then uh, do make a point of uh, remaining tuned in during that part of the program. And Moving on to the second uh, main topic, Uh, we'll be looking at the poppy appeal. Um, So this is very much the season for that, um, coming up to the 11th of November. Uh, The poppy appeal is something that's been run by the Royal British Legion to support the most vulnerable in our society, be it all veterans that the uh, Legion cares for, but also for those who suffer from social isolation and those who are simply overwhelmed by the challenges associated with uh, the cost of living crisis. Um, These are our noble aims, and we shall be discussing the topic with the senior manager of the Poppy Appeal, uh, Ms. Emily Fry. Uh, We also uh, spoke to a couple of people involved in the Charity Work for Peace. Now why that's significant is because it expends a great deal of its efforts uh, in raising uh, money through the Poppy Appeal. Uh, Daniel Zia is a volunteer at the Charity Work for Peace uh, and he enumerated his efforts to raise funds for this uh, particular cause. Uh, So we'll be um, uh, sharing what he had to say uh, later on in that part of the program. And we'll also be listening to the chairman of the Charity Workgroup. is uh, Mr. Zahi Jathoi. Uh, and he gave us an insight to the efforts that his organization uh, was making in raising money for uh, the poppy appeal. Uh, and together with all this, uh, we will be sharing the Islamic standpoint, of course, on all that we discuss. Uh, and that will be uh, provided by Imam Jalis Khan. So... Uh, As mentioned before, we'll uh, be looking at the weather uh, first and foremost. Uh, The weather, if you're interested, well, it's uh, not very optimistic. Today we'll be wet and windy for most with rain, heavy in places, brighter for northern Scotland with a few scattered showers, but staying very windy, sunny spells and showers for the far south too. In the evening, uh, it will remain wet and windy for many, with rain spreading back into northeastern and far northern Scotland. South England and South Wales will see variable cloud and showers. Pretty wet, uh, not too warm, uh, something that is expected, uh, I suppose, during this time of the year, so I shouldn't really complain. Right. Um, As far as uh, news is concerned in um, the um, wider media, uh, there is, of course, what has been dominating our news screens and uh, uh, print media is the crisis in the Middle East. Uh, uh, Many of us were able to see the news of the horror unfolding in the Middle East over the last uh, two weeks, Uh, and this seems to be continuing Hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians, many of them innocent civilians, uh, were killed, uh, continue to be killed, uh, um, or injured our thoughts and prayers uh, with all the victims of this tragedy. And we pray for an early cessation of hostilities and an early and lasting resolution to this conflict. Now, in the wake of these events, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has issued uh, the following uh, statement, which I will uh, read. It says that um, over the past few days, Hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians, including women, children and the elderly, have been killed or injured as a result of senseless violence and bloodshed. The killing or harming of innocent civilians is a direct violation of the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who taught that even in a state of warfare, no woman, child or elder should be targeted or harmed in any way nor should any religious leader or place of worship be attacked. Uh, The Ahmadiyya Muslim community extend uh, its uh, deepest sympathies and prayers to all those who have been left bereaved or affected in any way. Our hearts go out to them all. We pray and urge for an immediate end to hostilities and for peace to prevail so that no more lives are lost. For that, it is essential that the channels of communication between relevant parties and nations remain open. Until a ceasefire occurs, any military action taken must ensure that civilians do not come to any harm. Furthermore, Muslim countries within the region should unite in an effort to establish peace and to ensure that the rights of those innocent Palestinian people who have no link with extremists Are protected. We urge the United States and other influential nations to abstain from any actions or statements that may further inflame the volatile situation. Instead, alongside the relevant international organizations, they should make every possible effort to urgently de escalate the conflict and secure peace as soon as possible. Justice and equity are of paramount importance in achieving lasting and sustainable peace. Thus all the major powers must focus on establishing long term and sustainable peace based upon the principles of fairness and true justice. So that is a statement issued by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community following the guidance of His Holiness, Hazrat Masrur Ahmed, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. On to other news, I suppose the uh, big news that is certainly surfacing today is concerning the by-elections. That There were two uh, that were held um, and the results came in during the early hours of this morning. Uh, The first was the mid-Bedfordshire seat uh, that was previously held by uh, Nadine Dorries and uh, the other was the Tamworth uh, seat that uh, was held by Chris Princher, uh, who had lost an appeal against uh, a proposed common suspension for um, drunkenly indiscretions uh, involving two men. Uh, both seats had a huge Conservative majority. Mid Bedfordshire had 24,000, and Tamworth had 19.6,000. Uh, Neither was retained. In fact, there was a a swing of something like 20% uh, to Labour. Labour, in fact, secured both. Uh, Sarah Edwards is the new MP. She won by uh, 1,300 votes. And Alistair Stratham secured the victory in mid Bedfordshire with a majority of uh, 1,100 votes, so nearly 1,200 votes. Uh, So this is uh, going to be uh, certainly a cause for concern for the Conservatives, having this kind of uh, swing, this kind of change in uh, favour of Labour. But uh, the only thing that they can draw some comfort in is what some of the representatives are saying, is that this is um, um, an election, a by-election, and by-elections seldom uh, are reflected, all the results are seldom reflected when the uh, general election takes place. So uh, let's not uh, uh, be uh, too uh, too much in despair uh, at uh, these kind of results. At least that's what they're saying in order to draw some comfort from what uh, many would say is a disastrous result for the Tories. Uh, a very welcome result. Uh, many labor supporters would say for them. Um, So that's uh, that particular item. And uh, we have also other things that are going on. This is from the Times. It's about the uh, GCSE uh, exams on laptops. Um, Most of us uh, who are presenting today and uh, on the breakfast show, in fact, uh, most of us generally, remember exams uh, something that is done with pen and paper, but uh, that's going to change. Uh, and um, uh, AQA, uh, the biggest exam board, is introducing GCSE exams as early as next year for Italian and Polish that are going to be done on uh, laptops. And uh, they are saying that other courses are going to be following in later years. Uh, the listening and reading assessments of the two language uh, uh, language GCSEs will move digital for pupils in the summer of 2026, subject to approval of Ofqual. So it's a proposal at the moment, but it's unlikely to be stopped. Uh, so, so needless to say, devices, devices that are going to be used in exams would be offline uh, during assessments to avoid ha- hacking or cheating. And Colin Hughes... Uh, Chief executive of the organization of AQA said, Technology and change are two constants in education. After all, we went from quills to fountain pens to pyros and from scrolls to books. Moving to digital exams is the next step of this evolution. Uh, AQA are still going, uh, are really going for this. Uh, They contend that digital exams allow people to use digital skills are better for the environment help children and their special needs uh, helps children with special needs reflect the world of work and remove candidates concerns that they will be penalized for messy handwriting so i don't know what you think but uh, that's uh, w- what is on the card it seems uh, as far as the future is, co- is uh, concerned uh, Health story here, uh, a positive one, uh, progress in eradicating cancer. Um, Cancer was once perceived to be a death sentence. However, innovative treatments continue to come to the fore, and other treatments uh, are being made more effective than before. Uh, Currently, when tackling prostate cancer, uh, it was often found that the cancer becomes resistant to the drugs being used to eradicate it. Now, this study published in the journal Nature has found the reason why that, or at least one of the reasons to why that is, and uh, um, tabled a way to combat the res- this resistance by the malignant cells. So, apparently what happens is that tumors, this is why they become resistant to um, to treatment, the the tumors, the offending tumors, pull in myeloid white blood cells in the body that normally fight diseases and hijack them. So instead of fighting the disease, the cells release signals which promote tumor growth and help the cancer to resist treatment. And so, what um, uh, the scientists have done is to um, mitigate this particular development and um, develop a, and um, suggest a drug that resensitizes tumors to the treatment by targeting these myeloid white blood cells. In a trial of patients uh, with advanced uh, prostate cancer, the drug was found to shrink tumours uh, given in combination with a hormone therapy drug uh, in, in, in zeltamide. Now, one in four, and this is the result, these are the results, one in four patients saw a response to the combination as their tumours shrank by more than 30%. Are observed dramatic decreases in levels of, of prostate-specific antigen. So this is a blood marker often elevated in cancer. And the study, they lead Professor Johann de Bono from ICR, that's uh, uh, the cancer research, uh, and Royal uh, Marsden NHS Foundation uh, Trust said that this research proves for the first time that targeting myeloid uh, cells rather than the cancer cells themselves can shrink tumors and benefit patients. Uh, this is tremendously exciting and suggests we have an entirely new way to treat prostate cancer on the horizon. It is hugely rewarding to see our theory proven in a trial of patients uh, with the disease. And the Chief Executive of the um, Cancer Research Professor Kristen Halin said, um, I look forward to seeing how this work progresses and hope it will pave the way to a new treatment that is beneficial to people with prostate cancer and potentially many other cancer types. Uh, there are 52,000 men uh, uh, that are diagnosed with prostate cancer every year and scientists are doing a commendable job in tackling this disease. Uh, don't forget, and um, as far as the Muslim Islamic standpoint, I think that can be added to this, is that we should always uh, be optimistic in uh, being able to eradicate any disease that comes to the fore because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has said there's no disease that Allah has created except that He also has created its treatment. So there are treatments, it's just a case of finding them. And those uh, researchers, who are looking into these, um, into finding solutions, should uh, be optimistic that there is a solution. It's just uh, a case of finding it because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that for every disease there is a cure. Uh, One other story, this this is an interesting story that um, uh, raises a number of questions. It's about a 13-year-old boy who was spotted in Hackney, apparently, with a water pistol. And he was playing uh, with this, with his sister. He had, I think uh, I said, a blue water pistol. She had a pink water pistol. An off-duty policeman thought the gun was real and called for backup. And all hell broke loose. Soon armed police arrived in two vehicles. This happened in July. Uh, rammed the boy off his bike, knocked him to the ground. This is a 13-year-old boy, and pointed the submachine guns at him. Now, the Met spokesman um, confirmed, it doesn't uh, show much contrition, but they confirmed, and this is a quote from them, firearms officers left the car, and uh, he was handcuffed, that is the boy, and detained, It quickly became clear that he was not in possession of a firearm. He was de-arrested at the scene. In subsequent inquiries, his family confirmed he had earlier been playing with a toy water gun. Uh, So that's the end of the quote. The the child recalls seeing the red dots from the police firearms as the guns were pointed um, at him. Once the armed officer had knocked him to the ground, a neighbor brought his mother out who protested to the police. Uh, the Met has apologized for the incident, which uh, happened in broad daylight, as I said, uh, sometime in July. The mother of the boy said that uh, uh, she and her family had been left broken by the trauma and left insulted by, by a police officer who called her aggressive at the scene. One officer claimed her son had been lucky. Uh, the Met accepts the boy, who is black, suffered trauma. Uh, his mother said his race led to his treatment by armed police officers and brief arrest on suspicion of having a firearm. In the defense, the Met said uh, it was called to report uh, of a gun in the street and was obliged under policy to treat all firearms as dangerous until proven. Otherwise, it said no misconduct uh, issued had been identified. Uh, The boy, as I said, had been playing near his home, With uh, a blue uh, water pistol and uh, his sister with a pink one. Now, the Met also said, and this is a quote from them um, they said that specialist officers are trained. Well, Uh, there must be something lacking in the training if they can't even differentiate between a toy water gun and uh, a real gun. But uh, they say that specialist officers are trained on specific tactics, including using vehicles to bring cyclists to a stop. This tactic was used in this case causing the boy to fall off his bike. For what? For playing with a brightly colored water pistol with his younger sibling. Uh, for being a black boy on the streets of Hackney. Uh, so this is what uh, his, um, his mother is, is saying. Uh, I know and the police know that they would not have treated my son in the way that uh, they did if he had been a white 13-year-old boy. I know that they would not have treated me with the contempt shown towards me as described uh, uh, being aggressive if I was not black. After what has happened, how can I ever tell my children that they can turn to the police for help? I feel broken by by it all, distraught because I was not able to protect my child from what happened. So this is uh, the very assertive view of the mother of the child. She feels were very much aggrieved by what took place. Um, DCS James Conway, who was in charge of policing for Hackney, said this incident was understandably extremely distressing for the boy involved as well as the rest of the family. We know it may cause public concern and we want to help the public understand why we responded in the way we did. I apologize soon afterwards to his family. So the mother um, was alleging uh, that there was a prejudicial component involved in the police reaction. Uh, had uh, they been white then the response would uh, have been, she claims, would have been very different. Uh, it is not for us to uh, uh, judge here at the radio station as to who is right and who is not. Um, but uh, it, the whole instance does raise uh, this uh, issue about uh, the way that um, people are treated uh, especially when color is involved, involved. is it uh, a factor uh, and would people be dealt with differently if uh, a person of a different color was involved um, and now it is good that um, there is uh, a global inclination towards trying to deal with with everything equally, irrespective of class, color, or creed. It's only now in the 21st century or the late 20th century that this particular issue is being recognized and is grappled with by modern societies. And what I want to uh, convey is that this was precisely the teaching that was expressed 1400 years ago in that famous sermon of the Holy Prophet, Peace be upon him, about equality. Um, when he said that an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, nor a non-Arab has any superiority over an Arab, a white has no superiority over a black, nor a black has any superiority over a white, except by, by piety and good action. In other words, all humanity has to be viewed impartially and treated equally without fear or favor. It is only their good conduct that should differentiate them. So it is an ideal that has been, in, that was enunciated 14 centuries ago and is only now in recent times been accepted by modernity. How many more ideals, I wonder, has modernity yet to embrace that were uh, that were taught by our noble prophet uh, at that time? And how many more uh, suffering have we had to endure by ignoring those uh, ideals that were uh, mentioned 1400 years ago by the holy prophet of Islam? Right, so that um, uh, concludes one part of this uh, broadcast. We do have uh, we do have a cricket, World Cup taking place over in India. Uh, I know you follow cricket, uh, Imam Ghulis. So any any um, thoughts on that? Do you think uh, who do you think are going to be uh, the, at the top four um, in the teams that are competing will go to the semi-finals? Any thoughts?
0: Bodhisattva, I'm being completely honest. I'm not really following the cricket. I'm not a very big cricket fan. Uh, maybe you can enlighten me And who do you think is going to win. Oh,
1: okay, throwing back <laughs> the question back to me. Well, yeah. India have uh, proved to be extremely strong. Uh, they've won all their four matches. Um, and uh, the other teams, uh, England, uh, uh, have not done too well. Um, they've lost matches that you didn't expect them to uh, New Zealand are doing well. Uh, Pakistan, I think, have just lost the one match. Um, so we'll see how how it progresses. Um, uh, Afghanistan uh, did uh, play quite well in their recent match, but uh, they were let down by their uh, catching and their fielding. Their fielding is, unfortunately, in that particular match, was very poor. Uh, yesterday, it was uh, India that uh, won against Bangladesh, uh, and as I said, India seemed to be very strong and unassailable. And um, South Africa suffered uh, a defeat against Afghanistan, I think. Uh, so they were also one of the, uh, the favorites, but they don't seem to have done too well. Um, so that's that. Uh, have you been following football at all? Yes, um,
0: I think the past few days, we, um, <coughs> the Euros, the Euro qualifiers were happening and a few international friendlies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think two days ago, England were playing Italy, which yes. uh, England uh, won decisively, 3-1, mm-hmm. um, a very dominant performance. Um, and I think it's looking pretty good for England. Um, do, you,
1: do you think they have a chance in the Euros or will they come back um? with the tails between the legs?
0: (laughs) I think they definitely have a chance. I think they're probably going into this competition as favourites. Really? Yes, uh, favourites. If not the favourites, then definitely one of the favourites. I think the only other uh, team that's extremely strong is probably someone like France, Um, maybe Spain. Um, But yeah, I think definitely France and England Uh um, are definitely up there.
1: You don't uh, fancy Portugal? Portugal with Ronaldo and Fernandes? Portugal
0: are, yeah, I'll put them third, but I think definitely England and France are probably up there. Okay,
1: so England, England, France, okay, yes, okay, no, there's a lot of talent in the English team. Uh, uh, people are raving about uh, uh, Duke Bellingham. Yeah, Jude uh, Bellingham, he's, yeah. he's exceptional talent now, yeah. yeah, he's really good. Watchers, so yeah. he surprisingly did uh, very well at, um, well, I say surprisingly, but... Um, uh, people say that that was expected. He's done ex- exceptionally well at uh, Real Madrid. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, yes. yeah. No, he's absolutely dominating uh, that league. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, did you play football yourself? I wasn't very very good at football. You were, no. Um I, I
0: have played yes in yes? the past. Yes, because I, do, I know
1: in Jamia where you um qualify from, do have football teams and do have football tournaments. Don't they?
0: Yes, yes, yes. We do. So um we would play. In uh, the Ishtamas and there'll be um, tournaments happening during the year. Mm-hmm. I would not play in those tournaments or for Jamil, but I would play um, um, leisurely. Uh, uh, I'd play for fun during the day. And uh, yes, I enjoy playing a little bit of football okay. here. Uh,
1: yes. Okay, good, good. Right, um, we have to move on. Uh, we got to now um, look at, review, uh, consider the first of our main uh, stories, uh, as mentioned. Uh, uh, during the top of the program, we look at two stories which we deal with uh, in some depth, and this one is on consciousness. Uh, what is consciousness? Um, I'm sure this is picked up by one of the uh, from one of the websites uh, that we usually trawl through. Uh, and the gist of what this is saying is that um, it's pretty obvious to each of us that we are conscious as we go about our days and feel the experience of just being ourselves. But uh, how do we know that someone else is conscious? Uh, It's something we lose during uh, dreamless sleep, under anesthesia or in a coma. What exactly is consciousness? Uh, On the one hand, it's pretty obvious. It's what we all feel as we go about our daily lives is the experience of being you. On the other hand, it gets pretty tricky when we try to pin down the science of it all. How do we know that someone or something else is conscious? Uh, What is the relationship between our consciousness and reality? Is it uh, all just a hallucination? Uh, When does it start and stop? Consciousness, when does it start and stop? Does consciousness reside in a particular part of the brain? Many set out to tackle this elusive but utterly fundamental quality of life. And researchers are attempting to conceptualize and study um, in the um, relatively young field of consciousness. Multiple theories have emerged. A new way of testing them and and adversarial collaboration is offering a novel approach to not just consciousness, research, but science more broadly. How can we measure consciousness? Does AI have consciousness? When does it begin? Does it ever end? A lot of questions there. Um, We will be joined shortly by Anil Seth. and Anil Seth, um, I'm sure that um, our intrepid uh, engineer is trying to put him through, but um, he'll be joining us uh, shortly. Professor Seth is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Uh, he is also director of Sussex Centre for Consciousness Science uh, at uh, that uh, university, and the co-director um, Can- of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research program on brain uh, investigations, brain, mind, and consciousness. He's actually. Yeah, in Melbourne, Australia at the moment. And uh, that's what uh, we are trying to get through um, um, to 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 Melbourne, Australia, in order to be able to talk to him. So that's going to come uh, soon. Um, there is, of course, uh, an Islamic angle to all this which will be uh, relayed to us through uh, uh, our um, resident Imam, Imam Jalis Khan, and I'm, I hope that uh, Professor Seth will be joining us. If you have, of course, any questions and if you want to share your thoughts uh, on this, then do please uh, call in. Our number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. 687 7878 Or um, you can uh, uh, tweet us. Uh, oh, I said tweet. Uh, it's no longer, we can't say tweet anymore uh, because it's no longer uh, a Twitter handle. It's X. And you post your thoughts uh, on um, you post your thoughts on X. So if you want to use that method, then uh, by all means please do so. I think we're having some trouble with uh, getting through to Australia, we were hoping to talk to Professor Seth. So uh, I hope that uh, we can fill in uh, while we're waiting uh, for this connection to be made. We can fill in. By, uh, by talking about the Islamic angle. Is that all right, Mr. Hahn?
0: Yes, uh, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, Go yes. Um, in general, when we look at scientists and when they speak about consciousness and mind, um, yes. we see that it is more or less synonymous with the soul. Um, and it is widely accepted that the body is split into two parts. So the body is the physical body that we have, and the mental or the psychological, that is, the mind and consciousness. And uh, the functioning of the physical body is being researched um and uh, even to this day we are still finding out and it is thought that everything about the soul can be learned by studying um the functioning of the brain. the mind body dualism suggests that there is the, there is an existence of the soul. if you look at um the fourth successor of the Prophet's messiah uh, um may peace uh, be upon him um that is Hazrat uh, Mirza Tahir Ahmad. he states regarding this fact. So I quote, In case of human beings, the word soul is used and this has developed to a degree that it has the capability of becoming independent entity in itself, a spiritual form which can live after the separation from the body. What is the nature of that form? We don't know about it, but this much at least the scientists have discovered is that energy bundles can survive as energy bundles. Previously, they used to rubbish the belief in souls, but they now admit that what they have discovered leads us to the possibility of some sort of human energy living in an organized form as separated from the physical existence of man. That is what will happen in the first instant. The soul will have a consciousness of some sort. So this, this point that Hazrat um, Misa Tahir Ahmed has mentioned is actually supported by um, leading scientists um, We have Robert Lanza who's a, le- a leading scientist in neurogenerative medicine who agrees, who agrees that life does not end when the body dies and he suggests that complex phenomenon like dreams and imagination and memory indicate a vital life force which exists independent of the body He says that research suggests that a part of the mind, so that's the soul, is immortal and exists outside of space and time. So us, as Muslims, we we look at consciousness and mind in the way that we look um, through the soul. So the soul is what we would consider as the consciousness and mind, which is actually supported by a lot of scientists.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, So... Are we saying that <coughs> uh, consciousness exists uh, with the soul?
0: Yes, yes, that's exactly, mm-hmm. uh, yes, that's, okay. that's probably. So, uh, okay. um, I don't know if you're aware of the famous um, philosopher um, René Descartes.
1: Oh, René Descartes, yes. yes. Uh, I think therefore I am. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely,
0: yeah. that's that's exactly why I have mine, and I think it fits perfectly with what we have today uh-huh. with our topic, what is consciousness. So. Okay.
1: Um you I mean we we're having difficulty and in fact we're trying again. Um but we you had uh, the opportunity to talk to another professor. Mm-hmm. Uh Who's he? Uh, so that
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So that is Professor Frank Sanksbeel of uh-huh. the University of Cardiff. So mm-hmm. um amazing gentleman. I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing him. Okay. Um
1: So who exactly
0: is he? What's his background? Yep, absolutely. So um, Professor Frank did his first degree in biology with a focus on zoology, and that was in Germany. Uh Um, And this was before coming to Oxford in 1990 to do a PhD in neuroscience. Um, And uh, he was working very closely with Professor Sir Colin Blakemore. Um, And after a few years at the Max Planck Institute of Neurobiology, he moved to Cardiff in 2000, um, Mm -hmm. where he's still residing today. Um, he's a professor of neuroscience and he's the head of the neuroscience division in the School of Biosciences. Um, just a little fact about him in his, in his spare time. He enjoys um, wildlife photography and gardening. And he has a greenhouse full of cacti, which explains his Twitter handle or, or X handle, um, Cactus Frank S. Okay. So, um, yes.
1: So, you had, a, you had a chat with him. So, let's see what he had to say about this particular subject.
2: The first question is that you um, oh. can tell us why you became a right. neuroscientist. Now
1: I'm told.
2: Yes. Yeah,
1: so I'm told that uh, we have uh, uh, Professor Seth on the line now, uh, which is great. So I'm afraid uh, we'll have to uh, listen. I hope you don't mind. I uh, don't. don't, mind I don't no. uh, we'll have to uh, listen to uh, your interview later on with Professor uh, uh, Senge Sengu. Um, I'm pleased to note now that uh, we do have uh, um, um, Professor Neil Seth uh, on the line. Thank you very much for joining us on The Breakfast Show, Professor.
3: It's a pleasure to be here. I, I apologise if you had trouble getting through to me. I'm well, in a remote part of Australia right now.
1: Yes, it's a long way away, so that's fine. Uh, no apology necessary. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, we're talking about consciousness. Uh, uh, can you explain what, first of all, what what motivated you motivated you to be a neuroscientist interested in this particular subject, in consciousness?
3: I honestly think it was something that I've, in a way, always been interested in, and um, I've just been very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to, to keep doing. I mean, consciousness is one of these questions that I think we all puzzle about, whether it's from a scientific, a philosophical, or a religious perspective, you know, it's, the, it's one of the big questions. Why why am I here? What What explains the fact that I have experience? You know, why am I just more than a complicated object? What? happens after I die? Where was I before I was born? I think these, these questions fascinate all of us. And neuroscience and the study of consciousness in particular is just one way of getting at these big existential questions. And so, for me, the academic path has, has been the path that, that I've followed in, in, um, in trying to understand some of these issues.
1: Mm. And how much development do you think there has been in explaining consciousness over the span of your career say?
3: There's been an awful lot of progress. If I think back to when I started, which was about just over 30 years ago as an undergraduate student, there was the International Dictionary of Psychology at the time, and the entry for consciousness said that it was mysterious, fascinating but elusive and that nothing worth reading had been written on it which is a pretty it's a pretty poor assessment of the field and I was discouraged from from going into it because it was considered to be a bit non-scientific really but many things have changed we have brain imaging technologies we have new kinds of experimental designs um, we have new theories and I think although there is no consensus about the answer and I think it's still really quite mysterious how consciousness does happen. We know an awful lot more about the relationships between consciousness and the brain. I kind of, I have the feeling that we know what the contours and eventual answer would look like. So there there has been a lot of progress and that's why it's been such a rewarding field to be in for the last 20 or 30 years.
1: Mm. Uh, My colleague and I uh, we were talking about it on air earlier on while we're trying to make the connection with you. We were talking about also the relationship um, of a soul and consciousness. What's your view about that? Is there is there anything anything that links something else that is within us um, that perhaps explains consciousness?
3: I think it's one of these words where it all depends what you mean, doesn't Ah. it? With with the word soul and um, in. You know, the, the sort of scientific attitude can be, I think, quite dismissive of some of these concepts, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's justified to some extent, but not always completely justified.
1: Too religious. So in, yeah. Is it is it because well, it's too I mean, religious? Not, not so much.
3: Mm. I mean, in in the sense that it's sort of pushing the explanation away from the realm of science, um, and you know, I, when I when we think especially of how the you know, religion, philosophy, and science are of consciousness has developed in the West that the the dominant idea of soul was this kind of uh, idea that came from Descartes, the soul as this immaterial rational essence of mind um, that inhabited a completely different realm. This was the the dominant perspective of dualism. There was a mental realm um, and the the soul was what animated and, and made each person special. And then that, that leads to the question of, well, how does that, immaterial soul interacts with the evidently material brain and body. And and that was always a problem for the dualistic perspective. Now, I actually think that my my particular view on consciousness really connects it very closely to our nature as as living systems. I don't think consciousness is a sort of software program that the brain runs inside the head. I think it's intimately tied to our nature as living creatures. And from that sense, there's this basic experience that I think all humans and probably a lot of other animals experience as well, which is this simple feeling of, of being alive. And I think that's a as an experience that to me gets quite close to this ethereal this thing. It's, it's a way of being, a way of being conscious of being alive. And actually... And there are other concepts of soul. I mean, I have an Indian background, so I'm a bit more familiar with the history of, of Hinduism and the, the concept there of, of Atman you know, associated soul much more closely with, with breath than with, with thought. And I think you know, those ideas of soul actually have an interesting resonance with what modern neuroscience is revealing.
1: Do you draw a, a distinction between the self and consciousness or or is that describing the same thing?
3: I think self is part of consciousness. So actually, this is something I've focused on quite a lot, especially in, in Western traditions. Again, there's this, there's this sort of, um, idea or intuition that the self is the thing that does the perceiving. Like it's a kind of mini me inside my head that's peering out through the windows of my eyes. And there's the world, it's perceiving the world. And the self then you know, decides, decides what to do, exercises some free will of some sort Um, and then causes the body to act. In this case, the self is really, it's what consciousness feeds into rather than being part of consciousness. Now, I think that the self is just part of ongoing flow of conscious experiences that every organism, or at least certainly every human organism, enjoys. The self in this view isn't one thing. It's not a single essence, whether we call that the soul or, or not. It's a collection of the ways in which the brain perceives the body from the inside, from the outside, in terms of its relationship to the world, um, and the collection of all these different ways of perceiving the body in relation to other things. For me, that is what constitutes the self. The self is part of what perception is. It's not the thing that does the perceiving
1: so where where would you say we we does is emotion centered in emotion anger uh, sympathy um, uh, stress worry is that uh, is that something that is uh, conscious uh, consciousness related or self related
3: oh absolutely and basically anything that we can describe that's part i think mean, this is what, one reason why consciousness is such a think a, it's not just a grand mystery in science it's a it's the most human mystery as well because everything that defines us as as human beings everything that matters to us matters because of consciousness emotions matter to us because we experience them if there was no if you weren't didn't feel scared mm. when um fear was happening it wouldn't really mean anything to us so certainly emotions are part of the scope of consciousness and i actually think they are an intrinsic part of what it means to be a self. And there's a very interesting work, and I've been part of this in some ways, which considers emotions as what happens when the brain perceives the internal state of its own body rather than the external state of the world. Our experience of, let's say, fear is the brain's perception of what happens in the body when the, the organism is, is preparing to run away from something or, or fight something or is in another situation which is interpreted as, as threatening. And the, body, the brain's perception of the body in these circumstances, well, that is what the flip side of that in conscious experience is what we call fear. And the same in different ways for, for all the other different emotions. So a very embodied thing, emotion. It's, it's mm. essentially
4: embodied.
1: Fascinating. Um, I've got my colleague with uh, with me. Uh, He would like to ask a couple of questions as well. Is that okay? Of
0: course. Uh, Hi there, Professor Seth. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, As as we're all aware, AI is progressing quite fast and uh, it's it's become um, part of our life, actually. Now everyone is using AI um, to help them in one way or another. So my question is, do you think one day AI can have consciousness as well?
3: I'm very glad you asked this question because it's certainly very timely. There's a lot of excitement and also I think a lot of fear, some of it justified about the rapid development and especially the rapid deployment of AI in our lives. I mean, we can't avoid it now already. And there's this idea out there, and I think it's largely inspired by by science fiction, that at some point, and maybe already now, AI doesn't merely become intelligent, but it also becomes conscious. And of course these are different things. Like, intelligence is about doing the right thing at the right time, very broadly. Consciousness is about having experiences you know, like fear or happiness or joy um, and you know, experiencing, seeing things, perceiving things. Now, I think actually it's very unlikely, certainly that current AI is conscious or even really that AI is on the trajectory to be conscious, firstly, because consciousness and intelligence are different we tend to put them together as humans because we you know we think we're smart and we know we're conscious so we think the two must go together but that's just a i think that's a human bias that we have Mm -hmm. so just making ai smarter isn't going to suddenly make it conscious or aware i have a deeper problem with it as well i think it's driven by this fairly old analogy that the brain is some kind of computer and if you Basically, if you can program an AI in the right way, it will do something similar to what brains do when, they, when they're conscious. It sees consciousness as a form of processing of information. And I think this is, this is a huge assumption. It might be right, but I do think it's a huge assumption. And my way of thinking my work has led me to a rather contrary view. I have to admit I'm somewhat in the minority here, but I think consciousness is probably something that only living systems can have. And at best, if, if this is on the right lines, hmm. then AI will at best only be able to simulate consciousness, you know, we interact with a language model, and it often feels like we're interacting with another conscious mind. But I think that's just a reflection of how our minds work. And we tend to project qualities like consciousness and understanding into things that seem superficially similar. I don't think it reveals a fact
0: about the system itself. No, that's fascinating. Thank you, so, thank you so much for answering that. No, You've shed some light on this topic. Um, as we're all aware, AI is progressing very fast. Um, There's another question in, in, in terms of faith and religion. Um, so we see that people of faith believe in a creator that communicates with us without any physiological input. Um, for example, through dreams or visions and revelations. Um, does neuroscience explain this? And if it does, then how would you say it explains it?
2: I
3: don't think it does. And, and here I confess that this is really very far out of my my wheelhouse. You know, I grew up in a in a family with a, a Hindu father and a, a Catholic mother, both of whom sort of abandoned their, <laughs> their religious upbringings when I was growing up in in the south of England. Um, I'd come to be interested in religion, but in a sort of different different way. You know, not necessarily as providing explanations for how the world or the universe is, but for really capturing things that are super important to human experience and and human society. The psychologist and philosopher William James, who in the 19th century was one of the founders of psychology and one of the earliest writers in the Western tradition about consciousness from a scientific perspective, wrote an amazing book called Varieties of Religious Experience, pointing to the kinds of of experiences that can um happen in religious traditions that are different from experiences conscious experiences that that happen outside of religion i think for me that's that's very interesting i'm fascinated by how religious experiences can if you like shed light on the range of possible human experiences it stops us taking things for granted so much i i do I think you know, there's a lot of complementarity, so in certain religious traditions, certainly in, in the Buddhist tradition, which is something where there's been a lot of interaction between um, neuroscience and, and philosophy, and these ideas of the self as being not a single thing and being impermanent and, and always changing. I mean, those insights you see in both the spiritual traditions and in the philosophical and, and scientific traditions. And, of course, religion can provide a you know, context for science. Some of the, the earliest work in, in my area about visual perception was done by Ibn al-Haytham in, the, mm-hmm. I think, the 15th Absolutely. century, this incredibly gifted um, Islamic mathematician and, and researcher whose work is, is very little known. But there was such a flourishing of work at that time in, in Islam that it was you know so far ahead of, ahead of the game
0: Absolutely. anywhere
3: yeah. else. But then, of course, there are conflicts. You know, the, you know, the idea that... that you know, there is a, a, a single creator that's communicating with, with us in, through our brain somehow. I mean, that would be very hard to, to map onto any of, of where modern science is taking us. But the last thing I'll say about this, because I think it's important, is that, that it's really important to retain a bit of humility here. I think certainly within science, I won't speak for, for religion, but there are still things that are mysterious. Like in physics, science has revealed so much, But it still hasn't told us why there's a universe in the first place. And some of these questions may forever lie beyond science. And then we have to look elsewhere. And it's not necessarily the religious answers are the correct ones. But I think it's important to recognize that there may be limits on the kind of knowledge that science can give us.
0: Joe, thank you so much. Thanks. That's great.
1: Now, um, just before you go, uh, Professor Seth, um, I just want to know what's the explanation about um, where consciousness goes when you're asleep, or when you're unconscious. Where does the, that consciousness go then when you're unconscious?
3: Oh, this is such a such a fascinating question, and you know, for me, it was it's both held as now, the fact that consciousness can basically stop and then restart, I think, is an everyday miracle that mm. we you know, we take for granted and we shouldn't. We go to sleep. And most of the time when we're asleep, we, we are actually having conscious experiences. We dream, of course. But even mm. when we're not dreaming, there are still sometimes things going on in our mind at a very low level. But then there are other things like general anesthesia, which is very different from sleep I mean, i've had general anesthesia a number of times and you are just gone you know, there's mm. no experience at all it could have been five minutes it could have been five years you were out and then you were back and no time seems to have passed i think general anesthesia is is probably the closest you can get to being dead <laughs> <and> <laughs> without actually being dead in, in mm. the, from the perspective of consciousness you are turned into an object and then turned back into a person. Now, I think this tells us a couple of things. Firstly, it tells us that there is this intimate dependence on consciousness and the brain. You change the brain through a simple chemical manipulation of an anesthetic and consciousness goes away, change Mm -hmm. the brain again. It comes back. Where does it go? Well, I actually don't think it goes anywhere. I think it's just, it just stopped consciousness Mm -hmm. for me in in these cases is revealed as a process and you interrupt that process by intervening in the brain that process stops and of course the beautiful thing about anesthetics is that it's only a temporary pause and then it comes back again in sleep it's much more complicated story because we dream because um, it's a more normal state i mean general anesthesia was, was not really around in evolution but evolution has shaped our brains to sleep as well so sleep is a very active complicated process the brain is doing all sorts of things in relation to what happened in the day in relation to um, sort of keeping itself healthy um, so there's that then there's all sorts of interesting questions about what happens but consciousness seems to disappear in part because different parts of the brain stop talking to each other in the ways that they normally do the brain is still very active it doesn't turn off but communication between brain regions seems to be disrupted in a way that means that consciousness just fades and then goes away entirely under anaesthesia.
1: Right, Professor, I have to end it there. We fast approaching news. I thank you very much for joining us all from halfway around the world. I wish you all the best in your research and if you care. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Wonderful. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Jalees Khan and myself who lead them at the time. is two minutes past eight. It's Friday the 20th of October 2023. We were discussing this subject of consciousness earlier and dis- uh, discussing that and reviewing it and trying to... Uh, gather more understanding of it uh, through uh, talking to Professor Seth all the way from Australia. Uh, we also had a conversation, at least uh, Imam Janis Khan had a conversation with uh, Professor Frank uh, Sengpil. Um, he gave his introduction earlier as to who Professor Sengpil is. And this is what Professor Sengpil had to say in that particular interview.
2: The first question is that, um, if you can tell us why you became a
5: neuroscientist? Yes, so I've always been interested in how things work, and that's why I specialized in physiology when I studied biology for my first degree. And the brain is probably the most complicated thing in the universe that we know of. And, of course, Mm -hmm. it's also what makes us humans special. It makes us, you know, what we are or who we are. And sometimes some people call it the final frontier in in science, it's it's a very new field of research. So when I started in the late 80s, hardly any university offered you know degree courses in it. You know, the American Society for Neuroscience started their annual meetings in 1971 with 1,400 people, and now there are 30,000 uh, attendants at that meeting every year. So it's it's an area which has you know hugely grown in interest, not only. Yeah, among scientists, but of course also in in, in popular interest. Okay. Did
2: so. Around right about that time, as you were saying, the late late eighties, there wasn't that much offer to offer in terms of the view of science. Did you find that no. a bit challenging? Uh, did you, Did you find it challenging? As in, um, uh, so like your, sorry. Yeah. Actually,
5: yeah, it's a good question. Um, no, actually, yeah, I, um, in in a sense. I benefited from the fact that it was quite a new area because it was still possible to read almost all the important you know, uh, papers, you know, publications that came out in, in my specific area of, um, of research. Nowadays, um, there are hundreds and thousands of papers uh, published every year, and you can't keep up. You know, when 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 I first started. Um, during my PhD in 1990, you know, my boss had a filing cabinet, you know, on the corridor, and, and that basically contained virtually all the, uh, all the relevant, you know, uh, literature on the subject. And nowadays, you could, you know, fill libraries, you know, with with what comes out every year. It's um so in a sense, it was easier then than it is now. I think I kind of, you know, I own, almost feel with the students nowadays and the just the sheer volume of you know, of of subject matter that they have to get to grips with. Oh, wow. So you, so you basically saw the progression of this
2: science as you grew older and as you kind of delved more it, into this that's topic.
5: I mean, the technological advance that I've seen in the a bit over 30 years that I've been working in this field now is absolutely, you know, incredible. When I think back, you know, I mean, I was basically working in the stone age science you know technically speaking of, of neuroscience when i started and now it's like you know science fiction where we can watch you know individual nerve cells in the brain you know being active you know while while you're doing something yes i absolutely do. that's quite fascinating um if if you if
2: swiftly, could could you actually fits in perfect with your lecture this morning. Um, as a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. how would you describe consciousness?
5: Yeah, that, that is, is, is the hardest question. Of course, I, I started my lecture with, with this as well. Um, it's probably best described as you know, external and internal awareness. External of what goes on in the world around you and then self-awareness of the mental processes you know, inside your head. You know, it's linked to, to decision-making, planning, um, and responding to the world in non-automatic um, you know, ways. So the, 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 the uh, origin of the modern concept, um, I guess, goes back to the philosopher John Locke, um, and he described consciousness as the perception of what passes in a man's own mind, or woman's, obviously, in her own mind. And that, of course, also makes it very difficult, because it is in your mind only, which means no one else can know what this is, what it is for you subjectively. It is your subjective experience, which no one else can share with you in that sense. Mm-hmm.
2: No, this is a very deep take, it's a very philosophical kind of question, I think. It, 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 is, uh, it is, yes. Uh, I, think, I think teaching this in the morning must be very difficult
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, It's it's okay for me. I'm a morning person. I don't know what how the students <laughs> find it. Yes,
2: <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very good to know. I don't think I'm a morning person. Between you and I, right? I don't think I'm a morning person. Okay. You are <laughs> not. Okay. Just okay. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> we'll we'll move we'll to uh, um, so, your s- research um, seems to look very closely towards the mechanisms and the functions of the brains um, mm-hmm. and processing like the visual stimuli. So, um, so, your personal research, um, how does your research have a bearing, and if mm-hmm. anything, on the understanding of consciousness?
5: Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, I, I think it does. As I said, consciousness is subjective and personal and it's very hard to quantify, but of course, quantifying is what laboratory science is normally about. So, you know, we are looking at some paradigms that try to shed light on consciousness indirectly, and, and a good example is, is visual perception, and in particular perception of visual illusions. You know, and, and one of them that I have studied in, in, in the past, not right now, but um, in the past, is binocular rivalry. That that occurs if you show two different things, very different things, to the two eyes at the same time. Let's say you look at vertical stripes with your left eye and horizontal stripes with the right eye. Um, just imagine that for a moment. You uh, interestingly you don't see a crisscross pattern. You actually see a random alternation of either vertical or horizontal stripes. So so. The, the pictures that are on the on your two retinas they are obviously the same all the way through horizontally one eye vertical in the other eye but your mind's eye your perception changes all the time and 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 we looked at you know where in the brain does this happen how does this happen so this is a way of testing consciousness in a limited way admittedly just the, the visual aspect of conscious awareness and but but at least it is testable because of a, as a scientist you need something that is testable, not something that you kind of philosophically just think about. Yeah, you know, if you see what I mean.
2: No, I do, I do. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Okay, that's very deep as well. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for that. Yeah. Um, as as someone who obviously, as we previously mentioned, uh, someone who saw the development of this. Sense, Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that the study of consciousness belongs Mm -hmm. in the neuroscience department or the psychology or philosophy department?
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's also a very good question. Of course, it started in the philosophy department, if you like, you know, centuries ago, no question. Um, But for me, it definitely belongs in neuroscience. Um, I guess it comes down to whether you think, as I do, that consciousness can be explained entirely by physical and chemical processes in the brain, you know, or emerges from those processes, or whether you believe that consciousness or the mind is something that exists separate from the physical substance of the brain, like the the dualists believe that, like Rene Des- Descartes, for example. But then, mm-hmm. that makes it difficult to study. As a neuroscientist, I'm looking for what we call a neural correlate of consciousness. So, you know, basically the activity of some nerve cells that might explain how a specific conscious uh, feeling is is generated in your head, okay? I mean, that still Mm -hmm. doesn't explain how you subjectively feel about it, because only you can know that, but at least it might go some way, you know, um, at explaining which parts of your brain are involved at least okay okay
2: so there you 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 categorically said it this belongs in the for, the, the for, for, me, department. for
5: me yes that's right but um that that's that's because you know um if, if, if i uh, describe myself in, phil- in in philosophical terms i'd say i'm mm-hmm. a materialist meaning mm-hmm. you know um the 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 the, the, the brain and consciousness are or the brain and the mind are essentially the same thing? The, the 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 mind is nothing without the brain. Let's put it that way. You know, I you know, I'm I'm convinced that once the electrical activity in my brain ceases, um, um, my mind will also disappear, and not okay. linger on in you know in in some ethereal way. Okay, okay, that's fair enough. Thank you
2: so much for that answer. Thank you. Um, so I have, um, this is probably going to be the last question I have for you, obviously, in time. You probably need to give more lectures as well. Um, so this question is that um, medical patients who are um, in the vegetative state show some signs mm-hmm. like in, of the brain. So there's brain activity still present. Um, but they're not mm-hmm. conscious. Um, so yeah. How does the current UK law require them to be treated and cared for? Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, that, that's a really important question. You know, first of all, you know, I have to emphasize obviously vegetative state does not mean brain dead. As you said, there is brain activity in you know, in parts of their brain, in the brain stem for example, they are you know, able to um, uh, typically breathe on their own. The clinical diagnosis of the vegetative state is that they are not able to follow verbal commands. Um, and um, now some brain scanning experiments have actually shown that a small minority of these patients can still produce you know localized brain activity um, when they are asked to perform certain mental imagery tasks so so the, you know clearly these are these um, are, are alive and they have a right to life that is protected by law like that of everyone else so um, the default position is that life-saving, uh, life-preserving treatment, like in this case it's typically the feeding tube, will not be withdrawn unless it is considered in the best interest of the patient. Now here of course it becomes different difficult because you can't ask the patient uh, who is vegetative uh, what their interests are, so in that case the the doctors treating the patient and their family members will uh, Discuss what is in the best interest of the patient in all, whether to continue the life support or remove the life support, um, and you know, in, ideally, of course, there is agreement between the doctors and pay, um, and, and and family members. But if there isn't, uh, the case will end up in court. You know, the, the 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 only the only way to ensure that you are in control of what happens to you. In the event that you end up in a vegetative or minimally conscious state, uh, would be to make, you know, what is called an advanced decision or a living will, where you describe exactly what you want to happen or not to happen should you, hopefully not, but should you end up, you know, in in a condition like this.
3: Hmm.
5: No, I completely, completely understand. Perfect.
2: That's that, that's great. Um, Professor Frank, I would like to thank you so much. For giving some time um, to us. You're very um, is it. It's as if I'm in one of your lectures right now, actually. <laughs> really uh, Thank you so much. Thank uh, you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. it. Um, there's, there's one question that I would like to ask right at the end because we have a lot of listeners. Um, that yeah. Well, this is possible. They might want to get into this this field, or um, they might want to you know delve a bit more into this uh, this topic about neuroscience and consciousness. Do you recommend yes. any book that they can read, or something like something um, general that they might be able to pick up and um, per maybe oh. even pursue this this um, this this topic?
5: Yeah, I mean, I I started long ago. I, I know how I got in, in into this. Um, yes. um, that the person who then became my um, PhD supervisor, Professor Colin Blakemore, he wrote a mm-hmm. um, you know, long time ago in the seventies, eighties. You know some books which you know which were very popular then for example mechanics mm-hmm. of the mind um, mm-hmm. uh, you know is, is one that that I read when I was an, you know, an undergrad student uh, there mm-hmm. are also some you know, very nice books written by Oliver Sacks, um, you know who was a neurologist like the man who mistook his wife for his hat for, is, is one that comes to mind
6: um, yeah.
5: Yeah, so, so the, these 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 are both authors, yeah, uh, who I'd recommend, you know, um, yeah, Colin Blakemore, Oliver Sacks, uh, definitely. There are, of course, you know, some more more, you know, uh, specialist books, you know, about cognitive neuroscience and so on. Books that are, you know, like 500 pages and very weighty. It's probably mm. not not beginners' reading. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah I wouldn't think so. No. <laughs> no. No, I, I really appreciate your time, uh, Professor Frank. Um, again, um, on behalf of our team and even um, from our listeners as well, uh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for, your, for your time.
1: My pleasure. Right, so that was um, in the conversation that uh, Imam Jim uh, Jalish had with uh, Professor Frank uh, Um And I think you enjoyed that, uh, Imam uh, well, delicious. I, You're having I, I fun did. there. I did. I did. Hmm? Professor
0: Frank was amazing. Um, hmm. he's, he's he's a Dortmund fan, a Borussia Dortmund fan football.
1: Oh, he's a Tottenham fan.
0: Uh, Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund. Dortmund, yeah, Dortmund okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I learned a lot about Frank, um, okay. Professor Frank,
1: but yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, fine. Okay, anyway, um, it brings us uh, to a close of that particular topic. Uh, we have to move on. Uh, then second of our main topics is uh, the poppy appeal. Uh, The National Service of Remembrance held at the Cenotaph in uh, Whitehall on Remembrance Sunday provides the nation uh, with a physical reminder of all those who have served and sacrificed uh, with uh, British and Commonwealth soldiers, sailors, airmen and women represented together with members of the emergency services and civilians ensuring that no one is forgotten. The members of the royal family will pay tribute alongside members of the cabinet, opposition party leaders, former prime ministers, as well as the mayor of London and other ministers. Representatives of the armed uh, forces, uh, fishing fleets and merchant air and navy will be there as well as faith communities and high commissioners of Commonwealth countries. So uh, that uh, is uh, what... We have in store, uh, certainly, uh, in the coming weeks, uh, where uh, we are going to be remembering um, um, those who have fallen for uh, for this country, the Poppy Appeal. It's something that um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the elders of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, have taken very seriously in uh, that they have, as mentioned in at the top of this very program that uh, they've expended a great deal of efforts in raising money uh, for the Poppy UPO. And one of the um, individuals that has been involved in that is uh, Mr. Daniel Zia. Uh, we spoke to him earlier and this is what he had to say in that conversation. Uh, we have the pleasure of the company of uh, Mr. Daniel Zia in the studio. He's no stranger to the Voice of Islam. He's been a veteran presenter Uh, of the Breakfast Show on Mondays for many, many years, uh, longer than I think that he would like to remember. Um, But he's also been a very active member of the uh, Poppy Appeal team. Thank you very much for coming on and speaking to us about this, uh, Daniel. Uh, uh, As a Muslim, why do you think it's important to be part of something like this?
4: So, Islam is really two things. Islam is about Hakukullah, which is the rights of God, and Hakukulabad, which is the rights of humanity. And there is no better way of fulfilling your rights to humanity but giving out charity. And poppy appeal um actually fits right in the middle of that. So it's actually a pillar. Charity is a pillar um uh, in Islam, it's one of the beliefs that we—it's central beliefs um, of Islamic system. Um, zakat is um, um, is is a part of that, and also charity, which is um, uh, which is given out other than zakat. So um, uh, this is something that all Muslims um, do throughout the year, and this is something which uh, helps us increase in spirituality, increase in closeness to our Creator. In the Holy Quran, uh, chapter 51, verse 20, Allah says that and in their wealth was a share for one who asked for help and for one who could not. So I think that verse really says it all, which is that charity is really something which needs to be given to somebody who is both needy, who we know is needy, and somebody uh, who is needy and is also asking and raising his hand or her hand for help.
1: Mm, thank you. Um, loyalty is also a, a feature of the responsibilities of a Muslim. Why do you think it's important for a Muslim to show loyalty to their country, especially to the country they live in?
4: So loyalty, again, is part of a Muslim's faith, is a, is again a part of our belief to be loyal to, to one country, to one's country. And um, I'd like to quote here um, uh, something that uh, our current head, um, current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Mashuri Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, um, said a couple of years ago, and I quote, As citizens of any country, we Ahmadiyya Muslims will always show absolute love and loyalty to the state. Every Ahmadiyya Muslim has a desire for his chosen country to excel and should always endeavor towards this objective. Whenever a country requires requires its citizens to make sacrifices the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat will always be ready to bear such sacrifices for the sake of the nation, unquote. So again you know, this this is something which is very central to our belief, We've, we have to be loyal to the country we live in, we have to live by the laws of the land and we have to give um, a give first before we actually expect to take from the country
1: Okay and uh, what contributions uh, do you think um, the Ahmadi Muslim community have uh, been making over the years
4: so the Ahmadi Muslim community is really has been uh, at the forefront of um, uh, of donating to to, uh, to a plethora of charities uh, in the UK and around the world so we have many charity arms one of course is the is the poppy appeal uh, which is carried um, which is an exercise carried out every year under the Ahmadi Muslim Elders Association so every year, thousands and thousands of Aymadi um, uh, uh, Muslim elders actually go out uh, to train stations, on the streets, um, to the shops, and they collect literally door-to-door these donations on behalf of Poppy Appeal. Um, Then there are many other um, things that the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association does, which is the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association um, does many charity challenges, and they collect um, a lot of money. Um, The Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat as a whole also conducts uh, charity walks and events like that. So this is, I mean, charity walks is uh, also an event which was started by, in this country, by the fourth head of our community uh, back in the mid-'80s. So this is a long-running tradition within the community and something we think is again central to our belief and central to how we can contribute towards society.
1: Mm. Can you give us some idea as to how much uh, has been contributed on each each time?
4: Sure. So, um, uh, so the Muslim Elders Association has um, so before COVID, the Muslim Elders Association alone was able to raise about a million pounds mm-hmm. in charity from the various endeavours from the Charity Walk for Peace, uh, from the Poppy Appeal, um, and then give that donation to all the local charities. So that was money which was raised locally and then spent locally here. So that was a million pounds just in one year. Mm-hmm. And, and and there have been similar such, um, um, such endeavours in the previous years as well, and we hope that this will continue this year and beyond.
1: Do you find it difficult to uh, motivate people um, to participate in this? I mean, how how do you think we can make the younger generations, do you think they're also motivated to take part in something like the Poppy Appeal?
4: So, as as I was mentioning earlier, I think we are blessed in the community that within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, members generally across all ages are very motivated to go out and collect money for charity, whether they be um um, Amd the Muslims elder Association or the youth Association, or if I may uh, say the um the women 's association so uh, in islam planting a tea, uh, sorry planting a tree is an act of charity, and the the muslim women 's Association as a part of their hundred year celebration, planted one hundred thousand trees mm-hmm. in the last three years alone so there you know there are many facets of the activities that do end, and uh, as I was saying earlier, we are very blessed that uh, uh, we have a system in which uh, in not only the youth, but the elders, but also the women, all of them contribute and take part. Um, I, I know from my wife, for example, she's very active in the local community in Epsom where I live. And she contributes and the, the local community over there, actually, from the women's side, contribute very regularly towards uh, the um, the food banks over there. Um, as well as supporting other local charities like the Bryan Charities and other charities. So this is something that I think is uh, is very much uh, part of our blood.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, can I just, if you don't mind, talk about your personal role? I mean, what has been your role in this uh, particular endeavor?
4: So um, what I've been doing over the years is that I have been heading um, the collection effort in one particular area, which is um, uh, Weybridge. And um, so, spearheading the poppy, poppy collection appeal in that particular area. Mm-hmm. That is Weybridge. So, again, you're, you're going door-to-door to shops, to supermarkets, um, setting up stalls, um, and, and doing various other ways of uh, going to train stations and collecting money again for poppy mm-hmm. appeal. So, that's something that I've been doing.
1: Do you think that as we move in further into the future, do you think that, Enthusiasm for for the poppy appeal is uh, dwindling, or do you think uh, diminishing, or do you think it's uh, increasing? And if so, I mean, what efforts should we make to uh, to ensure that there is still um, a great deal of interest in this in this uh, in this collection or in this endeavour?
4: So I will share with you uh, an anecdote, actually my own. Personal experience with uh, with poppy appeal. The reason I got involved in poppy appeal is um, so I moved to this country about ten years ago, and uh, it, it was um, so I was asked by my uh, by my local community head to go and participate in one of the poppy stalls that they had actually put up um, in a supermarket. Um, so I went there, and this is a few years ago, and I was actually really surprised, very pleasantly surprised. To see that while there is a lot of people talk about uh, you know apathy and a lot of people talk about um, uh, people going away from charity, I, w- I I saw people queuing up literally to come to the stall and and give money, and that was I, that was a, quite an experience. I mean, game changer for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, wow, this this is amazing. I mean, this. Uh, so so to answer your question, I think. Uh, the uh, Poppy Appeal especially um, you know because this um, uh, Poppy Appeal represents donations going to ex-servicemen with what's happening around the world at the moment I think in terms of uh, wars and conflicts and whatnot, um, I feel that the importance of Poppy Appeal will only grow and has grown over the past mm-hmm. few years
1: and finally um, do you think you'll be uh, able to surpass what you were able to collect uh, in previous years and reach a million
4: um uh, I, I don't want to jump the gun I, we, we certainly are uh, are hoping for that we certainly uh, are praying for that uh, we've written to His Holiness who is our spiritual head to pray for that as well we would like to do that uh, but hopefully uh, the next few weeks uh, should establish what we're actually able to collect
1: well let's hope you can uh, meet that target if and not sure pass it uh, uh, considerably uh, wish you all the best thank and you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on thank you Right, uh, so that was an interview uh, with uh, Mr. Daniel Jha, a volunteer in uh, uh, raising uh, money for the Poppy Appeal. Uh, and very interesting conversation, I must say. Um, I'm hoping to have a, even a better conversation, I hope, with Emily Fry. Emily Fry is the senior manager for Poppy Appeal, and my screen tells me that she's uh, on hold. Uh, uh, Ms. Fry, thank you much for joining us. Oh, thank you
6: very much for having me on.
1: Right. Um, my notes tell me that you are uh, you joined the British, Royal British Legion in 2016, working with the Poppy Appeal, uh, who support volunteers delivering the annual Poppy Appeal and raising money all year round to fund vital welfare services to the armed forces community. And you're uh, also uh, uh, serving in the Royal Air Force as a reservist. They've been doing that since 2015. Have I got that right?
6: You have, yes.
1: So I've um, a, b- a very busy, uh, busy schedule. You have.
6: <laughs> we are we are um, about a week away from launching this year's Poppy Appeal. Uh-huh. So uh, the Poppy Appeal launches on the 26th of October, and will run for just over two weeks, uh, up until the Sunday, the 12th of November, um, which is Remembrance Sunday. So we're, we're getting ready. Our volunteers are um, prepare, or at the moment delivering poppies to locations and getting ready to start their collections from the 26th of October where we launched the brand new uh, plastic-free paper poppy, which we're very excited about this year.
1: Okay. A um, uh, bit of background now. Um, can you tell us uh, in which year this particular initiative started, this initiative about uh, the poppy appeal? Uh, how did it start? When did it start?
6: So the first poppy appeal started in 1921. So mm-hmm. um, we've been going for just over a hundred years. And um, the inspiration behind uh, wearing a poppy and the poppy as a symbol of remembrance uh, was after a poem written by Major John McCrae in 1915. Um, so uh, Major McCrae serves in World War One and um, was witnessed. Uh, flowers, poppies growing in uh, in the battlefields. So he wrote a poem called In Flanders Fields um, about uh, his experiences of the war and how something beautiful can grow through something so tragic. Uh, so that inspired a French woman named Anna Gurin, uh, who started manufacturing silk poppies um, to support war widows. And then in 1921, she met with the Royal British Legion who had just formed uh, a few months earlier and um, uh, together they uh, sold poppies for the first time, and the first poppy appeal was held in the October-November of that year, and um, 8 million poppies were were sold, raising £5 million that went towards uh, helping those who just returned from the uh, battlefields of World War I. Um, And to this day, we've had uh, a poppy appeal every year since, including the Second World War, um, where the poppies um, were a more austere card uh, for, for, to make up for wartime shortages of, of the materials that the poppies were produced by, and up until today, um, which will be uh, the yeah plastic-free paper poppy that we're going with, which is uh, um, show, will enable people to continue wearing a poppy to show that they care. Um, and has less impact on the environment. So it's Mm -hmm. a blended approach. You'll still see some of the uh, plastic stem um, paper poppies, but also we've just started um, producing these plastic-free paper poppies too. So you'll see both this year.
1: So more environmentally friendly. Um, You mentioned the figure of 5 million in the 20s has been raised as a huge sum uh, uh, from uh, today's standards. Um, uh, How much is raised nowadays...
6: So this year we hope to raise across the country fifty million pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we've um, we have an incredible amount of support from the public each year, um, and even during COVID, um, we still had volunteers out in the streets and communities, um, enabling us to to deliver a poppy appeal and ensure that people in all communities um, can can buy a poppy and show they care and support. Um, the armed forces community which is where the money raised from the poppy appeal goes towards supporting those who have served um, and their families and those that are serving um, and we deliver a range of welfare services um, be that with help with finance housing uh, recovery programs people with injuries or illnesses um, and we have defending services to help those who are isolated and um, life in the armed forces uh, could be different and has its unique set of challenges. Uh, I know that from my reserve life, um, where I uh, did deploy with the Royal Air Force a couple of years ago. Um, and it is it's a different, a completely different environment and some people can struggle when they leave service to transition back to being, back to being a civilian. So mm. um, we do support the services to, to help that transition and for people to access if they are in need.
1: So um, you're hoping to raise uh, 50, fifty million I would expect uh, this year as well.
6: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, um, we, yeah.
1: And um, how do you, I mean? How many volunteers would you be expecting to use?
6: So across the whole country, we have around forty thousand uh, volunteers. And we have businesses that support us too. Our super, all major supermarkets will be stocking poppies, and um, we have. Three and a half thousand uh, volunteer poppy appeal organisers in all communities who um, deliver their poppy appeals with, with teams of volunteers.
1: Right, and um, how, how, have you, uh, how have you how do you view the change that has transpired over the years in terms of collection and in terms of um, not only how much is raised, but um, um how the enthusiasm of people in contributing and the enthusiasm of people in uh, working with you to raise money
6: we still get tremendous amount of support um it's different in every city town communities i think people um take the poppy take the symbolism and it's a very a personal t- to them so we see a lot of outpouring of support in different ways um back a few years ago if you remember the tower of london poppies and the you know the imagery and the symbol and how that tapped into um you know know, i guess the emotion of the time um but we have that replicated across all communities so we have schools um we have faith groups um businesses and just individual collectors that come together uh, and it's something that unites everybody um you know during October and November, it holds a very special place in um, the psyche of our nation, really. It's it's something that we still get an awful lot of support for, and we need that support because without the volunteers, we don't have a poppy appeal and it is still an appeal that is delivered by volunteers.
1: No, thank you for that. Uh, my, my colleague also has a couple of questions. I hope you uh, don't mind on answering them as well, please.
0: Uh, good morning there, Miss Fry. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, as we're all aware, we're getting closer and closer to November the 11th. And um, h- how would you say that for all of our listeners, maybe they want to uh, participate in volunteering, um, they might want to volunteer. Um, how can someone start to volunteer for the Poppy Appeal? So,
6: the best way to um, get involved now is to visit our website. So, if you go to um, rbl.org.uk and type in volunteering, we have a volunteer form. Um, so, anybody, wherever you are, um, you can visit the website and have a look at the different roles. So, there's lots of different roles that you uh, can can supply for if you would like to volunteer. And there's also lots of different ways that you can show your support as well. So, if volunteering's um, not quite for you, absolutely. We've got, uh, you can visit the website, the RBL website, and take part in fundraising challenges, um, remembrance activities happening in your local areas uh, and other ways to, to get involved with, with the Royal British Legion too.
0: Mm, that's great, thank you so much. I think you've just answered my next question as well, which was how else can we support or show our support and gratitude to the Royal British Legion? Um, if there's anything else that you have in mind, what we can do, uh, what else we can do for our uh, for our, um, aspiring youth, what we can do and participate um, in these acts, um, if you have anything else to say.
6: I think the probably the most important thing for for us is, and our commitment to delivering uh, remembrance for, for the nation is just to to anybody listening to show your support by wearing a poppy. And um, this year, if you look out for the plastic-free poppy when we we launch on the twenty-sixth of October, um, showing your poppy uh, or wearing your poppy just shows to people that have served um, that we that that you care. Um, you may not know their story or what they've been through, but by showing uh, that you do care that wearing a poppy um, and taking part in remembrance it just it has a big impact on on people who um, who think oh you may not have known what I've done but yeah you're you're thanking me almost for my service so um for anybody yeah volunteer please do um, donate to the poppy appeal we do uh you require or need that money raised to fund the services that we do uh, and show and wear your poppy.
1: Excellent. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Ms. Emily Fry. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. You, the senior manager for Poppy Appeal. Thank you for sparing your time to come and talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Right. So uh, that was, uh, yeah, As I mentioned, uh, Ms. Emily Fry, the senior manager for Poppy Appeal. And we also spoke earlier to uh, Mr. with Mr. Zahid Jethoui. Mr. Zahid Jatoui, is the chairman of the National Charity Walk for Peace. Now, why that is significant is because this particular organization, uh, belonging to the elders of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, takes a great need of time, puts a lot of effort in raising money for the Poppy Appeal. Uh, So it was great to be able to speak to him. I was able to speak to him earlier and this is a recording of that particular conversation. Um, I apologize if uh, the introduction to Mr. Zaheer Jathoe is repeated, uh, but uh, this was part of the interview. We have the pleasure of the company of Mr. Zahid Jathoi. who is the chairman of the Charity Walk for Peace, under whose auspices this uh, poppy appeal is being uh, undertaken. Uh, thank you very much uh, for sparing the time to come and speak to us, uh, Mr. Jathoi. Uh, tell me, uh, there are a lot of causes that we could actually raise money for. Why did you select the uh, Poppy Appeal as, uh, as one of them for your, for, for, for your efforts? As-salamu alaykum.
7: Uh, yes, uh, you know, one of the objectives of Charity work for Peace is to help other charities. To help other charities in raising their funds to help other charities providing volunteers for their for their functions and uh, fundraising activities so under this i mean uh, you can say uh, so this uh, yeah. under yeah, this objective uh, we, we we are not only raising money for Poppy appeal we have uh, helped uh, british red cross really? we raised money or save the Children.
1: Uh-huh. We
7: raised money for the British Heart Foundation. Mm-hmm. We raised money for Humanity First. And uh, we raised money, we helped some mayors in, in their fundraising activities in different parts of the country.
1: Oh, for smaller charities? Smaller charities. And smaller local charities? Smaller local charities. Oh, that's very impressive. So the poppy appeal, because
7: Popey Appeal is a very big charity. It's a UK-based charity and uh, it's, uh, I mean, because we started, you can say, around 10 years back, Uh raising money for for Popey Appeal. Mm. And uh, we are continuing now because we have a very good relationship with this charity Mm. and uh, they appreciate our efforts every year. And because uh, this charity looks after the families of the veterans and the military mm-hmm. personnel and uh, we live in this country and we are very loyal to this country
1: and we want to contribute mm-hmm. to, to help them. You you, you, you managed to raise uh, huge sums. Uh, what was the uh, well, uh, sum raised last year? Oh, in, in last year we raised uh, over 900,000 pounds. Do expect do we have then. a target for <laughs> this yes, year? So. Yeah,
7: we have a target of 1, one million this year. Mm-hmm. and we hope that we will be able to, because uh, we have uh, a large base of volunteers. We have quite a few stations, underground stations, overground stations, some superstores. And this campaign is not only in London, this campaign is uh, throughout UK, uh-huh. Midlands, North Northwest, Scotland, Wales. So we hope that this year, we may achieve our target.
1: (coughs) Right, And what kind of methods do you use to uh, raise money? We normally, uh, you know, uh, this poppy
7: appeal campaign is very well advertised um, through the media and uh, on national TV and national newspapers and uh, almost everyone, all the presenters and uh, all MPs and councillors and mayors, they wear the poppy. So, because they have a very good advertising campaign, it is not very difficult for us to go down to the stations or super stores and uh, start collecting money because the campaign is already very well advertised.
1: Mm-hmm. So, how many different parts of the country, how many teams do you have? Uh, last year, uh, uh, we have over 1,000
7: volunteers Really? They took part in this campaign, uh-huh. and you know one thing with this campaign is that this is fifteen days campaign,
1: uh-huh.
7: and fifteen days continuously from morning till evening, our volunteers are on the stations and the superstores. Around a thousand of them. And a thousand of them. huh. Which which uh, dates have you? Uh, yes, this campaign uh, will start this year from twenty sixth of October onward, uh-huh. which is Thursday. Right. But we will be covering most of the stations from twenty eighth, uh-huh. Saturday onward. Right. But this year, Popi or the Royal British Legion asked us to start two days early. Uh-huh. So we are we are starting two days early. Twenty um,
1: sixth. Twenty sixth. I see. Okay. And um, uh, we um, the um, population is going through a, a cost of living crisis. Yeah. Do you anticipate? any difficulties because of that in raising funds as many as much as you want to
7: yes there is a factor of this credit crunch thing mm-hmm. you know and uh, uh, last year we were thinking we may not be able to achieve but uh, um, God helped us uh, uh-huh. in a in a way that uh, we achieved even we more than previous years i mean 2021. Mm-hmm. And last year, twenty twenty two, we thought maybe we may not achieve even, yeah, as compared to twenty twenty one, right. But uh, um, uh, our volunteers' efforts were such that we raised
1: over nine hundred thousand pounds, right? Okay, and that was an improvement of what? Oh, was that you? was an improvement. Oh, okay, and now you expect to? Now well, you expect that we, okay. we that may we may be able to raise okay. around one million. Mm-hmm. Um. Do you think that um, I was asking uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Daniel, about this? Do you think that uh, the appeal for the poppy appeal is diminishing? Uh, do you think, uh, or do you think that that's growing? Uh, I, I don't say it's diminishing,
7: but uh, I mean uh, the volunteers' base from the Royal British Legion is not as strong as it used to be. Uh And uh, our uh, volunteers are increasing in numbers every year. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the good thing for us as a charity, that we have uh, very dedicated volunteers to help other charities.
1: Okay, good. Uh, Let's hope that uh, you're able to meet uh, your target. Uh, I mean, uh, knowing the way Knowing you and the way that you work, I'm sure that you will be able, God willing, to achieve that target. Thank you for coming on. I wish Thank you all much. the best in the future Thank because you you're much. doing some wonderful work uh, in raising money for good causes. Thank so, you. May that continue. Sláinte Thank you, you for
7: uh, giving me this opportunity to explain Pleasure. about Charity Work for Peace. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Right, so that was uh, our conversation with uh, Mr. Zaheer the uh, chairman of Charity Work for Peace and his efforts in, uh, in in respect of the Poppy Appeal, we do have uh, a detailed uh, Islamic angle to all this, and that will be given by uh, uh, Imam Jalis Khan. What you, sir?
0: Thank you so much, Medea <coughs> Before I do get into um, the, the Islamic perspective, I would like to mention that I myself have actually taken part in the Poppy Appeal. Um, I remember taking part um, um, while I was in Jamia. Uh-huh. Um, so I actually, I actually live in Scotland so in my in, in, in my holidays my spare time so um, we actually went to um, one of the shops I think it was um, I think it was Asda so uh, a, a bunch of us including my younger brother as well and other um, uh, youth members uh, we actually went to Tesco and we actually um, stood uh, at the entrance and we collected a lot of money and we, we were, um, we, we, were um, we were met with um, cheerful faces and everyone was very happy and uh, yeah it was, it, was, it was an amazing experience and also um, during Jamia as well so Jomia uh-huh. is located in Hazelmere um, and just down the road there's a tesco um lisa i know you, you've definitely been to jamme as well yes yes it's, it's, it's in it's, it's hazelmere and there's a tesco just down the road um, yeah. and so um and there's also a, a, an M&S as well so um so a, a bunch of us um, friends we used to go to tesco and M S and we would stand outside um at the entrance and we would we used to we used to collect um uh, we used to we, we used to collect a lot um mm-hmm. and again we, we were we were met by um, like very um, cheerful faces, and very happy faces, and very. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a bit, uh, It was an amazing experience. Um, right. So yeah. So
1: the Jami, of course, is the seminary, the theological institute where uh, where members of the community who wish to uh, go into training. Mm-hmm. For seven years, you did. Yes, so seven years yeah. altogether, Yes. Okay. Um, you completed that. Yes, completed
0: okay. that. Yeah, completed that um, <laughs> okay. because uh, last year um, ah. graduated this year. So okay. yes, um, and then, So this is
1: something that you did during uh, during that. Absolutely. Serving that call. I mean. Engaging in that course, yes. you also did this as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely, right.
0: absolutely. This was right. actually um, it was it was a very important part of the the year in our uh-huh. syllabus, just leading up because um, we, we would come back uh, roughly um, end, of October, um, uh, sorry, uh, end of September, sorry, end of September, early October, uh-huh. and that's just leading up to November. Right. Uh, so around about this time, a few years ago, four or five years yeah. ago, a long time ago, uh-huh. um, we we uh, I, I remember doing this, um, and yeah, it was just it was okay. just an amazing experience. So yes, definitely. Um, s- uh, swiftly moving on to the Islamic perspective um, I think your interview with Daniel Zah mm. I think uh, Daniel Zah, he summed up very well mm. um, And he mentioned that Islam teaches you about two things about is- is- Islam. The crux of Islam is two things And that is the rights given to your God God Almighty, Allah And the rights given to um, um, uh, humanity so the rights towards um, God Almighty is worshiping Him in the right way. So um, us as Muslims, we practice uh, worship five times oh. a day, um, and there are many ways that we can actually um, fulfil the rights of um, humanity. And um, giving charity and helping the needy is actually just one of them. Um, and Daniel Zasab actually also mentioned something really good, and that is that this is actually part of our faith. Um, this is one of the five pillars: the giving alms, helping out, charity giving. This is actually part of faith. Um, swiftly moving to, 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 to the saying of the Holy Prophet Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him Just adding on and just emphasising um, This whole concept of poppy appeal um, The Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah Be upon him has said That love for one's country Is part of faith If you look at even the Holy Quran um, It says that O ye who believe Obey Allah and obey his messenger And those who are in authority over you we see that Islam teaches that to love one's homeland is 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 a part of faith. There's there's no there's no shying away from this. In light of this, um, as we are aware, Muslims all around the world serve their countries in many different ways. And uh, as we are all aware, in November the 11th marks Remembrance Day, and as we commemorate those who fought in the war in order to protect and preserve our freedom, we also remember the many Muslims um, who also participated in the war. Um for Muslims not only is defending one's country an act of patriotism, but it is also an act of faith. Um one Ahmadi in particular I would like to mention actually, he actually took part, um he um he was actually in World War Two, um one of the Ahmadi Muslims and his name was Muhammad Abdul Haq Ahmadi. And uh, he's from Gujarat. Um his father and uncles were initially the ones who 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 joined uh, Ahmadiyyad and then he followed suit as well as a young boy. Um, And he was a meteorologist and he served for the Royal Air Force of the British Armed Forces. And as a meteorologist, um, Abdul Haq Sahib, so he he actually traveled to um, the Burma front to support the RAF uh, missions against the enemy forces. And uh, weather and the knowledge of its effects on both fighter and bomber operations formed an important aspect of uh, the success of the RAF operations throughout the war. And this is just one of many Emadi Muslims um, mm. who actually participated in, in in the war. So we also remember those individuals as well as as well as the other ones, um, as as well as others as well who also sacrificed their life. Um, I would like to quote something of our beloved um, beloved uh, uh, Supreme Leader of the Emadi Muslim Movement, Hazrat Musa Musa um who says that a Muslim. A true Muslim can never raise his voice in hatred against his fellow citizens, nor for that matter against the ruling authority or government of that time. It is the responsibility of a true Muslim that he should remain loyal and fully abide by the laws of the land which he is a subject and this just kind of just, it, uh, just encompasses everything that we've actually spoken about today in terms of the poppy appeal um, that um, us as many Muslims, we, we consider this as, 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 as very important uh, to go out and uh, serve our uh, community and serve our country and serve mm-hmm. our land. Um, but yes, this, this um, <laughs> Okay, yeah, right.
1: Uh, no, no, thank you. Um, so you're saying that um, serving uh, humanity is part of our faith. Um how else do, do you think um the Amdi Muslim community does that?
0: So apart from uh, the Poppy appeal, we are also involved in many other um charity movements. So we uh-huh. have um um as 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 you're aware, the walk the, the walk for peace, I believe. Um, uh,
1: charity walk for peace is done by the elders and then there's the um uh, mercy for mankind walk that has been done by uh, the youth yes that's yeah. the one the, the, the mercy mm. for
0: mankind i do remember um the youth association going to um i believe it was um peak district or possibly mm. even lake district and yeah,
1: they actually they did go to uh, good, good locations yes, locations yes, yes, for, yes. Their, for their for walks i yes. think mo- most of the walks done by the elders is done at uh, at Battle for Two at the, this complex okay um, yes you're right mm-hmm. yes. yes so yes it's good that you mentioned that um, and we try to uh, contribute to all all charities um, both uh, that are uh, local as well as uh, international yes and uh, there is a healthy competition that is uh, between the two. Yes. Between absolutely. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely uh, raising million million pounds each. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's good to see. Yes, yeah. and we've um, got other charities as well. Absol-
0: a- a- absolutely. So if you, if you if you look at it internationally, we have um, Humanity First, uh-huh. and Humanity First has um, is just doing amazing work all around the world, especially in the developing world. Uh, we see hospitals being built in Guatemala. Uh-huh. we see we, we we see water um water tanks and water um pipes being built in africa okay. um so um by the grace of allah we're 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 definitely helping wherever um, there is need mm-hmm. um but yes, definitely, yes, there's, there's a lot of work being okay. done. There. And that's
1: being done because of this very important uh, tenet. Absolutely, in our, in absolutely.
0: absolutely. As, as I mentioned, this is a part of faith, mm. um, just helping our community, helping mm. humanity in itself. Mm. it's is a part of faith. So this is not something that... Um, it, this is something engraved in us, mm. uh, as, as done as us. It's in our
1: blood. Okay. And, and, and we have a lot of volunteers that come, professionals... That volunteer their services free of charge. Absolutely. Um, w- w- why do you think they do that, and w- what reward do they get for it? This is, the, that. This is a beautiful.
0: Um, this is a beautiful thing you just asked right now. This is um, as as I mentioned uh, initially, uh, the Islam um, teaches us of two aspects: uh, worshiping God and worshiping humanity. And in essence, the love for God. Is, is 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 instilled with helping out uh, humanity. So if we are helping humanity, um, for 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 the sake of humanity, we are actually helping for the love of God Almighty. So this is this is engraved uh, mm-hmm. within us in, mm-hmm. in the everyday Muslim community and within mm-hmm. Muslims that helping, um, helping your neighbor, helping help, help helping those in need is actually part is 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 actually um showing the love that we have for God Almighty. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So the reward, basically, is that's where it rests. Yes, yeah, it, absolutely. Uh, resides it's in earning, earning the pleasure of God. Absolutely, yeah? absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much um, for that. Um, I think that we are coming very close to uh, the conclusion of this particular broadcast. Uh, it leads me to thank uh, those people who have been involved in its preparation. Our producer Maliha Abdullah is certainly worthy of her gratitude. As our researchers, uh, Kuthi Ward and Hala, uh, must not forget uh, thanking our uh, intrepid engineer, we away in the control room making sure that everything technically ran smoothly during the course of this program. That's Mr. Mohamed Shafiq, so thank you to him. And then uh, we also had the benefit of experts who came on to the show uh, and uh, contributed to our understanding of the topics that we were discussing. Uh, Professor Seth, uh, Anil Seth, is worthy of a thanks. Professor Frank Sen- Sen- uh who uh, spoke to us earlier. And then we also had the pleasure of the company of Emily Fry. And then uh, we also had Daniel Jan and Zahid Jathoi sharing their experiences of the Poppy Uh So until uh, next Friday, it's Salaam from both myself and uh, uh, Mr. Uh,
0: Jalees Khan.